Welcome to episode six of Solved the D.B. Cooper Hijacking. In our last episode, we heard how Carl Loren determined where the landing occurred and how it differed from the route published by the FBI. In this episode, Carl describes how he located the man Walter called the cowboy. Carl Loren had discussed the hijacking with Walter for several years. Sometimes they would talk by phone multiple times a day. But Carl needed Walter to say the words, quote, I am D.B. Cooper, end quote. And while Walt often talked about the details of the hijacking, he never directly said he had done the hijacking. In his written confession from May 2013, Walter explains, Long into my retirement, I got a call from a very old and cherished friend, one of the original three men from Flint that taught me that a man was only as good as his parachute and the parachute only as good as the man strapped in it. He had figured it out. I was D.B. Cooper. Walter is referring to the skydiving he, Carl, and another friend, Art Lucier, did starting in 1957 at an airport in Saginaw, Michigan, a time in Walter's life he always looked back on as one of the most gratifying times in his life. Carl had called him during the fall of 2008 and directly asked him if he was D.B. Cooper. In his 2013 confession, Walter explains what happened next. I was never a liar. I was a robber, a thief, and a hijacker, but never a liar. But I had lied that day. I said, I am not. Sure you are, Carl said. And he went on to explain why. I had lied to one of my very dear best friends, something I cannot remember ever doing in my 70-some years. It took me about a month for me to call him back. I gave no apology. I just said, I am D.B. Cooper. Why now, Walter? Carl asked. Because it's time. In late 2008, Walter agreed to let Carl tape their conversations. Over a period of six weeks, Carl would go over to his daughter's house where they were able to hook a voice recorder to the telephone and record his conversations with Walter. Walter often talked about meeting the man he called the cowboy in the cafe where Walter walked to the night of the hijacking. Four years after that taped conversation in 2012, Carl was able to travel across the country to Washington State to visit the town where he believed Walt landed. Once there, he began to ask around. Here's how Carl explains that experience. I traveled to the small town where Walter had landed and started asking around. I met a guy named Wayne Willett who ran the shell station in the middle of town. And I said, okay, uh, I'm looking for a guy that drives a dump truck by day and he plays music by night. Wayne Willett said he'd check around. And I'd give him my name and address and phone number and that and return to Florida. A week later, Wayne Willett called me. He said, I've got your guy. Carl had lucked out because the man he described Cowboy to while in Cleelum, Washington, is a local history buff and the owner of a popular service station. Basically, he, Wayne Willett, knows everyone in town. Speaking with Wayne later about the experience, he thought he knew who Carl was looking for, but wanted to check with him first prior to reconnecting with Carl. In turn, Wayne gave him Carl's number so he could make a connection. A few days after I returned from Clay Elm, I got a phone call from a guy that identified himself as Jeff Wasadich. He said that it was him that was there that night, and yes, he drove a dump truck for a logging company, 
and he played music that night at Grange Hall. So that is how I met Cowboy. According to Carl, when he told Walt about finding the cowboy, he said Walt seemed upset. That is because Walt knew from the day he landed in the area south of Cleelum, Washington, known as the Tianaway Junction, he knew he was vulnerable. Walt was scared of only a couple of things and going to prison was one of them. Now, after over 40 years, Walt was concerned that he could be identified. The information in Walter's written confession, which he wrote in May 2013, is revealing. Walt wrote, quote, In June of 2012, I got a phone call from Carl saying he was going to Washington State in search of the parachute. Almost as an afterthought, he said, while there, he might take a stab at finding the cowboy. By now, that parachute would be buried beneath several inches of silt that would have accumulated from leaves over 40 years, end quote. Walter was right. Even though Carl had a metal detector, the area he needed to search was impossible to reach due to so many years of forest growth. But Carl finding Wayne Willett and Wayne finding the cowboy was something Walter hadn't imagined being possible. Here it was, 2012, and Walter figured it was no longer in the realm of possibility for anyone to ever identify him as the hijacker. Carl says that from that time forward, whenever he mentioned the witness, Jeff Osadich's name, Walter would get quiet. In 2016, a documentary film crew interviewed Jeff Osadich. In that interview, he tells a compelling and believable story which was later analyzed by forensic linguist Joe Koenig, author of the book Getting the Truth, and a well-respected expert in the field. His research shows Jeff Osadich as telling the truth. See what you think. My name is Jeff Osadich. I was born and raised here in Roslyn, Washington, in the Roslyn, Cleelum area. Uh, I grew up, went to school here. Uh, my first job out of high school was uh, working in a number nine coal mine where my family had, you know, I, my dad and my grandfather, three uncles, all of them worked in the mines. And jobs were scarce, so that was one of the first jobs I had. Then in 1962, they decided to close the mines. And I got laid off. Then I found and managed to find a job working in the woods logging, setting chokers, which was big money back in those days. It was like $2.50 an hour. And then I graduated, you know, up to where I was driving logging trucks and dump trucks, start running some heavy equipment, you know, building logging roads. And uh, when the logging started closing down in the area, I was lucky enough to get on with the police department. I spent six years with those. I moved on and I moved to Ellensburg. I worked in a packing house down there on the kill floors, cutting locker beef and doing stuff like this. Then I wound up working for Safeway for three years got laid off there because they were cutting back on man hours. So it seemed like everything I grabbed a hold of, I ended up with nothing, you know, just everything was short term. So somebody says, well, how come you had so many jobs? Well, they're in this area, it's all seasonal. You know, there's just, you might work for two months, you might work for six months, you might work for a year. You just, you don't know when you're raising a family, you take whatever jobs you can find in this area. Yeah, I played music a little bit. I did it for about 40 years. I, uh, I got started with an old broken down silver tone guitar and my dad always wanted me to learn how to sing tenor. 
10 or 12 miles from the house. I ended up getting a couple other guys, you know, that wanted to play music, and we struck up a little band, and we started getting going and everything. As I said, I played music, and there was a three-piece band. There was a accordion player, a drummer, and a guitar player. Well, the guitar player couldn't make it that night, so he asked me to fill in out of Tatianaway Grange for a Grange function. It was right close to Thanksgiving. And I said, sure, I said, I'll go out there and do it. Well, at that time, I'd been driving dump truck, and my wife had the car. She went to work. So I called my boss, asked him if I could use the truck, you know, to, to go out there. He said, sure, no problem. He says, but don't be picking up any hitchhikers. Well, that's okay, because I didn't have a seat in the passenger side of the truck anyway. So on the way out there, I just passed the Wenatchee overpass, just outside of Cleland, about a mile. I noticed a man standing on the side of the road hitchhiking and he had a suit on but I couldn't pick anybody up and it was it had been raining and snowing you know mixed it was cold November and I felt sorry for the guy but I couldn't pick him up so I just kept going till I got to the Tianaway Junction which is a little service station and a restaurant you know combination thing and I stopped in there for a cup of coffee because I was running a little bit early I said well I'll have coffee and then I'll, I'll go on out to the Grange Hall out to Ballard Grange in Tianaway and this man comes walking in. He looked like a drowned rat. He had black slick back hair, had on a black suit, a white shirt, penny loafers, soaking wet, and had his trench coat or raincoat rolled up under his arm. I thought, man, I guess it takes all kinds to make this world go around. I never said nothing. He, we sat there and had a cup of coffee, and he says, you live around here, kid? And I says, yeah. He says, can you do me a favor? I says, well, I'll try. I says, I guarantee nothing. He says, if I dial a phone number for you, he says, will you tell this friend of mine how to come over here at where I'm at and how to pick me up? He says, why? He says, where am I? I says, you're just outside of Clalum at the Tianaway Junction Cafe. And he says, okay. So he went back there and had an old pay phone with a dial thing on it, dropped some money in it, made a phone call, handed me the phone. And he says, this guy wants to directions you know how to get here. I said, okay. I said, which way are you coming? You coming up over Snoqualmie Pass or you're going to come up over Stevens and Blewett? How are you going to, you know, where are you coming from? He said, well, I'm going to come up over Blewett. And he says, how far is it from Blewett Pass? He said, to uh, where you're at. I said, it's probably about a half hour. I said, it's just about four miles outside of Clay Ellum, called it Tianaway Junction. And, uh, he says, okay, fine, thanks. So I handed the phone back to the guy in the suit, went sat down, finished my coffee, and he came back over. He says, well, thanks for telling him how to get here. And he says, don't worry about it, kid. He says, I'll buy your coffee. I said, well, thanks. You know, shook hands with the man, got my truck, and went on out to the Ballard Grange and played music. What really stood out to me is here stands a man, soaking wet, looks like a drowned rat, and he's got a, a raincoat, trench coat, whatever you want to call it, rolled up under his arm. Somebody says, well, didn't you ever wonder what was in that trench coat? I said, he could have had a, a dog in there. I said, I, I have no idea. You know, and I said, he could have had, you know, some change of clothes or something that he didn't want to get wet, you know, that he just, if his car broke down, maybe he just grabbed a few items out of his car and rolled them up in that because he didn't have nothing else. He just wanted to take something with him, you know. I said, I have no idea. I said, what people do is none of my business. You know, I said, the guy wants to roll up stuff in his raincoat and get soaking wet. I guess that's up to him. Jeff talks about the day in 2012 when he stopped by the gas station 
and Wayne Willett told him that Carl was wanting to speak with someone who might have been him. I stopped at the Shell station here in Cleelum, which I used to work at, you know, when I was in high school. And the owner's son told me that there was a guy looking for me. And I says, a jealous husband? You know, I mean, what is he? You know, I have no idea. He says, no, he said, this guy's from Florida. I says, I don't know anybody from Florida. I said, what's the deal? You know, what's he want? He says, well, this guy's name's Carl. He left me a, a card. He said, said to give it to you. I said, what's he want to talk to me for? I said, I don't know anybody down there. He says, well, he said, he stopped in here and asked me if I knew anybody that drove a, drove a dump truck, wore a cowboy hat, and played country music. He says, you're the only one around here that did that. I see. so he says, I told him, well, I'll give you the information. He wants you to call him. I said, okay, I said, I'll call the guy. I said, but I got nothing to lose. So I called him up, and we got to talking, and he says, do you remember such such a thing, you know, that night, you know, blah, 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 blah. And he says, can you just, he says, do you remember anything about that? And I says, holy cow, I said, that's over 40 years ago. I says, I said, I think, uh, let me think a minute here. I says, yeah, I says, I says, I remember something, you know, just before Thanksgiving, I said, about 40 years ago, somewhere in there. And I said, I saw a guy walking on the side of the road, hitchhiking. And I said, he wore a suit. And I didn't pick him up. I just went straight on down to Tianaway Junction, you know, and had a cup of coffee. And this man walks in. What did he look like? I said, well, he had slick back, you know, black hair, a white shirt. It was either charcoal gray or a black suit. I said, it was soaking wet, so hard to say, you know. And I said, he had penny loafers on. He said, what kind of penny loafers? I said, black with white socks. He said, you notice know, anything unusual? I said, yeah, he had his raincoat rolled up under his arm and he's soaking wet. I said, which I thought was kind of goofy. Then he says, do you have any idea who that was? I says, no. I said, I never asked names or anything. I said, the man asked me to give a friend of his directions how to get to where he was to pick him up. And I said, that was it. I had coffee with the man, shook hands and left. He says, well, do you know who that was? I says, no, I don't have a clue. He says, that was D.B. Cooper. I says, D.B. who? D.B. Cooper who? I said, I don't know no D.B. Cooper. Well, this happened, I guess, evidently the day that he jumped out of that plane. And there was nothing on the news, you know. I mean, it could have been Harry Schwartz, you know, as far as I know, that walked in there. And he says, well, that was D.B. Cooper. And I says, who's D.B. Cooper? He says, well, he just hijacked a plane out of Seattle. And I says, and? I says, there's no jet air airports around here for jets to land. And he says, no, this guy jumped out of the airplane. I says, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to argue. I don't know nothing. And he says, after a few other conversations, he asked me if I knew what was rolled up in that raincoat. I says, no. I says, it's none of my business, I says, what a man does. I said, if he could have had a dog in there, he could have had a shaving kit. I said, I don't know what he had in there. That's his business, none of mine. I said, I don't get personal, I don't ask questions. I know his face and his ears and his hands were beat red from being out there in the cold, but that's just anybody, you know. Other than that, I didn't notice anything unusual that he was soaking wet, and that was it. In the next episode... Forensic linguist Joe Koenig, an investigator with over 40 years' experience, gives his analysis of the key characters, Walter Recca, Carl Loren, and Jeff Osadich. End of Episode 6. Thanks for listening.
For more information, go to our Facebook page, The Real D.B. Cooper, and like our page. On that page, you will find out more about the story of Walter Recca, the man who became D.B. Cooper.